Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Politics without the soap opera. With unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen yearning to breathe free again to the one and only CR Podcast. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, back in the house Thursday, October 14th. But more importantly, it is the time and date to fight back against the system. We got to get on the playing field. It's not going to happen by itself. So we're going to discuss later today the pandemic of the untreated, which is what we're dealing with. Uh, We'll have Dr. Richard Urso on. But I first just want to tie up some of the loose ends about the vaccine. It's not, I shouldn't call it that. It's the fake experimental shots. And where we stand. There's a reason why red states aren't red. There's a reason why we can't even hold the line on the level of tyranny we had a month ago in in the red states. We can't get them to do anything righteous on the the shots, early treatment, masks, you name it, on anything. It's because there's only one side on the field. This is what I'm trying to do with our ConAction.network teams that you could sign up, and over the next few weeks, we're going to get ready for all the sessions. We have a special session in West Virginia. uh, Coming up very soon, Texas. Ohio is a regular session. Um... Tennessee. Again, if you could be a team leader, let me know. And we'll get together. We'll have a conference call with all the team leaders. And then I'll give you guys all the names of people who signed up and meet each other. Get on the playing field. Because right now we don't have that. You know, my son just got roped into one of these insane quarantines. We got our kids back in school because, you know, they, they ditched the masks. Two out of the three kids we, we put back in. And all of a sudden, we get this email with no transparency. You have to quarantine. Because they feel one kid got it in the first grade, and my kid was near them. So wait, they're all playing together. Especially this year, they're not doing any of the, you know, just voodoo isolation. They're, they're, they are acting normally. Oh, so they're on top of each other. But if your desk is there, even though this thing spreads indoors, everywhere and anywhere, there's zero signs to it. Six feet is made up completely. No one even knows where it came from. You have to, you have to isolate without any, any due process. Now, obviously, we're not isolating, but he can't come to school. And why am I telling you this? Because this is a school, this is a private religious Jewish school. So this is a student-parent body where I would say upwards of 90% voted for Trump. But nonetheless, everyone's kind of silent. They go along with it. Most aren't happy, but they do it anyway. And the few losers that there are, it's not set by the government. It's a private school. I mean, maybe they get pressure, but it's mainly these hotshots who are doctors, and they get involved and then set the policy. So this is what's happening all over the country. You could have a 90-10 red area, 
but it's the 10 controlling it because we don't get on the playing field. And that's what I want to talk about today and over the next number of days, how we get back on that playing field, what are some of the action items we need, the states you can get involved in. Again, sign up at conaction.network. Now, our first sponsor today, um, one thing you can do to protect yourself is to get a firearm. But then you get a firearm, what, you carry it in your hand? No. Um, You spend all that money on guns and ammo, and people forget about the gun belt as well as the holster. We the People Holsters, longtime uh, partner of CR Podcast, they offer, starting at just 40 bucks, American-made custom holsters. Um, They have cool printed designs as well. They fit basically any firearm on the market, right-handed, left-handed, inside the waistband, outside the waistband. Go to wethepeopleholsters.com slash CR. And while you're there, check out their premium printed hoodies. They have some cool patriotic paraphernalia. Make sure you get an EDC tactical gun belt as well so it sits properly on you, secure and safe. Every holster and gun belt comes with a lifetime guarantee. Wethepeopleholsters.com slash CR. Get additional $10 off offer code CR. Wethepeopleholsters.com slash CR. Okay, so... You know, I saw yesterday in West Virginia, they're going to take up the governor's bill. And it's pretty robust relative to where he was. So it's going to exempt, you know, any private and public, I mean, at least private, anyone who has a religious exemption, antibody test, or I'm forgetting what else. Um, and it, you know, across the board. So The religious exemption appears, we just have to make sure, that anyone could pretty much get it. If that's the case, it's worth passing. But again, why in a place with three-to-one majorities and a trifecta do we even have to indulge it? And my broader point is this. The problem is no longer the mandate, although it's a huge problem. It's no longer enough for allegedly Republican or conservative officials to be like, I don't believe in mandates. Oh, but this this vaccine is great. The times have changed. We now have months of data and problems with this vaccine that we now have to say we are suspending it. And we are not going to spend another penny of money from state funding to promote it. And we're going to hold hearings and get to the bottom of this before we do anything more on it. You have to militate against the actual thing. When you say the vaccine is the greatest thing alive, but I don't believe in mandating it, you lost the argument. I understand legally, intellectually, there are different things that you could believe something's good, but you don't have the right to mandate. We all believe that. But politically, you've lost the argument, especially when it's not true anyway. Think about this. There is data out now from Ireland. The county of Waterford, it has the highest adult vaccination rate, 99% plus. The second highest vaccination rate is Carlow County, C-A-R-L-O-W, at 98%. Guess which two counties have the highest COVID rate now? Waterford is number one. They had the highest vaccination rate. And, and Carlo, which was number two, they're in second place for COVID. Gert von den Bosch could be the premier vaccinologist of this generation. Has a piece at trial site. Keep looking at snapshots and you'll never see where this pandemic is headed until it reaches its final destination. And he creates a perfect metaphor for this. Everyone's like, oh, it's this percentage. It's that percentage. 90% are unvaccinated. 80%, 50%. He's like, dude, 
th- that's a snapshot. That's not the point. The point is, it's leaking. And it has been, and we've known this for months and months already. So it's not just a matter of it's going to get down to zero efficacy, but like we've been saying, if it's leaking, that is a problem. That means it's going to create viral enhancement, and it is. Why are we seeing greater problems in all the vaccinated places, and why is the virus worse? And he has a very chilling warning. I'm going to read a little bit here. It is subscription only, so I'll try to read some of it for you. An increase in infectious pressure, right, because it's putting pressure on the vaccine, on the virus, leads to higher risk of rapid viral re-exposure in the population. As far as previously asymptomatically infected unvaccinated individuals are concerned, rapid re-exposure to SARS-CoV-2 may lead to viral replication on a background of a suboptimal spike-directed immune pressure due to suboptimal short-lived anti-spike antibodies, those are the weak antibodies you're getting, and even to enhance susceptibility to disease due to suppression of functional innate antibody capacity by the aforementioned suboptimal anti-spike ABS. When such suboptimal anti-S immunity occurs in a sub a substantial part of the population, it is likely to further increase natural immune selection pressure on viral infectiousness and therefore promote further expansion of more infectious variants, thereby giving rise to additional waves of infectious cases and morbidity. As the evolutionary dynamics of the virus in highly vaccinated countries are now placing huge immune selection pressure on the viral fitness landscape, it is fair to postulate that the highly diversified spectrum of evolutionary trajectories of the pandemic seen in the different highly vaccinated countries will now rapidly narrow down to a more uniform path characterized by the following. Waning of vaccine efficacy, a relative increase of morbidity morbidity and mortality rates over time in vaccinated people, as compared to unvaccinated, which is what we're seeing, a relative increase in suboptimal immunity over time in both the vaccinated and unvaccinated individuals, which may translate into a relative increase in antibody enhancement, a relative increase in the baseline infectivity rate over time, continuing waves of increased infection, morbidity, and mortality rates, a relative increase in the frequency of more infectious viral variants with immune-resistant phenotypes over time. And this is not good. This is the top vaccinologist. He worked for Gavi and and Bill Gates. All experts and public health authorities seem to agree that the evolutionary dynamics of a pandemic are very complex and shaped by an interplay between infectious pressure exerted by the virus on the host immune system and immune pressure exerted by the host on viral infectiousness and that a pandemic can only come to an end when sufficient herd immunity is developed to control the virus. It is therefore surprising that none of these authorities seem to worry about the impact that massive immune intervention could have on the evolutionary dynamics of a pandemic that is now characterized by widespread dominance of highly infectious variants. The impact of human intervention on these dynamics can only be assessed and measured by monitoring changes in population-level infection, morbidity, mortality rates, and comparing these rates between vaccines and unvaccinated individuals as a function of time. And what I don't like is that he warns that if mass vaccination eventually enables SARS-CoV-2 to evolve dominant immune escape variants that are capable of escaping both the adaptive and innate immune system, the outcome of this pandemic will resemble that of introducing a pathogenic virus 
into a naive host species. I know we had doctors that weren't worried about this on the show, even Ryan Cole at the time, but Vandenbosch is, is expressing my concern that you could create something that will overwhelm the innate system. Now, if you read carefully what he says, he says it's because of the half-baked antibodies. So I am assuming that that could only be half-baked if you got the virus, virus, then got the vaccine. But if you only had natural immunity, didn't get pummeled and contaminated by the clot shot, hopefully that should hold up. But this is unbelievable. This is a scary theory that should have been dealt with before we knew anything. But now everything he predicted came to life. How else do you explain what's going on? And then again, not to mention all of the other side effects we're seeing from it, which we'll get to, you know, we'll get to more. But this is all being censored and it's in plain sight. Now, folks, part of why they're able to censor us is because they get all the money from us paying to hang ourselves with our own rope. Everything that you browse online, everything that you communicate through email, your business plans, your medical records, your social security numbers, that is not private. Gmail and Yahoo are not private. They are spy mail. And then big tech will sell it to the highest bidder. That's why I trust StartMail to secure my email. It makes me feel safe again. I actually started my own StartMail. You could... Uh, see me at danielharwitz at startmail.com. It keeps everything private. When it's deleted, it's deleted, period. Um, it's deleted forever. Startmail it uses its own servers, so they don't have Amazon's, you know, the parlor Amazon problem. They're backed by the most stringent, stringent privacy laws in the world. It could generate shareable aliases, multiple aliases. So, you know, if you just want to use it for kind of a spam type of sign up for a some program you you don't have to give your your main email um i really feel secure with it i ditched my spy mail and turned to start mail um increasingly i'm only going to be using that and especially when i organize the con action teams we certainly don't want anyone else seeing that i don't trust big tech neither should you start securing your email privacy with start mail sign up today you'll get 50 percent off your first year go to startmail.com slash conservative that's S-T-A-R-T-Mail.com slash conservative for 50% off startmail.conservative. Never allow big tech to spy on you ever again. So just before we bring on Dr. Urso, I want to note, you, you could look up, there's this study someone sent me from June, one of our doctors. It's in Euro, um, Euro PMC, or Europe, Europe PMC, they host the studies. The study is titled Path- Pathogenic Antibodies Induced by Spike Proteins of COVID-19 and SARS-CoV Viruses. They say pathogenic antibodies induced by sp- spike proteins can bind to unmatured fetal tissue and cause abortions, meaning miscarriages, postpartum labors, stillbirths, and neonatal deaths of pregnant mice. Real nice. Real nice. Now you tell us. Oh. And connected to that, connected to that, we have a study out on the menstrual cycle irregularities. 
okay? If you want to Google it, characterizing menstrual bleeding changes occurring after SARS-CoV-2 vaccination. Catherine Lee is the lead author. This is from the Washington University um, Division of Public Health Sciences, but she got help from people in Illinois, uh, women's studies at Harvard, Harvard University. Okay, some pretty uh, fancy names there signed on to this. And they found 66% of postmenopausal women reported breakthrough bleeding. What? Okay. Um, 42% of people with regular menstrual cycles bled more heavily. 44% reported no change. It's less than half after being vaccinated. 71% of people on long-acting reversible contraceptives bled. 39% of people on gender-affirming hormones and 66% of postmenopausal women. Um, we found increased breakthrough bleeding was significantly associated with age, other vaccine side effects like fever and fatigue, history of pregnancy, of birth, and ethnicity. I'm not sure. I didn't. I honestly didn't read that far to see which ethnicity. Um, they claimed were more impacted. Uh, but but that's th- this is unbelievable. And again, women don't typically talk about that. It's very private. And it's going to take so long. And they know this. They know it's going to take so long to vet this out. The cancer problems. It's going to take forever. This is not okay. Why is it that we can't get any elected Republican? I mean, Ron Johnson is like the only one. Like any of these governors, you it's not okay anymore to be neutral on this. You have to start raising concerns and saying, as a state, we're going to launch a full investigation. We're going to have autopsies. We're going to study and analyze everyone who died um, within our state you know, within 28 days of getting the vaccine. We're going to look at the timestamps. Look, they have all that surveillance data. They have the registry. It may as well use your spying for good. They have that data. Believe me, they have it. No one's interested. This is, this is it. I don't even know how to express this. Honestly, this is the first time in my career as someone who hates and is suspicious of our broken system where I wasn't cynical enough about what what was happening. I just, I don't know if it's like theologically, I just couldn't imagine God could let something like this go through that's two-thirds of the world is just going to get nailed by this. That I don't understand it, but it's happening. It's that bad. It's worse. And then again, there's the issue of it reactivating latent viruses. We're now seeing this a theme everywhere that has high vaccination rates. They have an insane, um, an insane, an insane level of RSV. Okay, this is an interesting thing. You go to Sweden, for example. Sweden was late with the vaccine, but then when they went in, they went all in. Very high vaccination rate at this point. This is a very interesting dichotomy. COVID is almost dead there, but RSV is going out of control. But that's a very simple explanation because 
On the one hand, they didn't adopt the other policies of the world. So they all got herd immunity. They got natural immunity. So it's burned out. But on the other hand, they did go and get the vaccines. So that reactivated RSV. Makes a lot of sense. You're seeing that everywhere. You're seeing that everywhere. It is truly very scary. You know, you know, imagine when we talked about the fact that you couldn't quantify, you couldn't encapsulate, you couldn't conceptualize the magnitude, the severity, and just the sheer amount of cascading, devastating, deleterious consequences that will result from the lockdowns for years to come. But now we see that for the, for the vaccines, the devastating consequences, and they'll be gone by then. Don't doubt me. They will not only, when when it comes due, they they not only won't deny it, they'll utilize those things and say, oh, it's coming from another virus. A lot of people think Marburg's disease is the next thing because they're working on a vaccine for that. Marburg's disease is a bunch of blood disorders that are very, 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 very similar to the side effects of the vaccine. So they'll easily say, oh, it's Marburg's disease. We need another vaccine. These people are truly, truly sick in the head. And they need to be countered. We need to activate in all the legislatures. You've got to call them all up. you got to organize. I am going to give you a forum as long as I can get someone to coordinate it. That guy is going to get you all in a, some form of telegram or communication. You're going to call for your first meeting. Whoever could show up in person will show up in person. You'll have some sort of Skype to Skype in people that can't. And you'll get together and say, what could we do in our state with the issues before us, with the people we have? And they'll all be listeners to this show. So let's move on to our guest. Now, folks, speaking of all of the immoral aspects of the public policy side of COVID, there is no sphere of it that is more immoral, illogical, inhumane than the war on treatment. This is indeed a pandemic of the untreated. We have never done this before. Like I said just last night, um, Dr. Eric Hansen told me he had a prescription for budesonide challenged. They're finding that with the steroids now. Anything that treats COVID, you are not, not allowed to do that. You must suffer. You must die. Now, one person who has been at the forefront of this, and I want to talk a little bit today about the organization he has helped co-found globalcovidsummit.org um, with Ryan Cole and some of these other doctors. Very important. We're going to get to that. Dr. Richard Urso, you know, it's funny. When I first looked him up, I was like, oh, he's an ophthalmologist. And okay, that's that's great. And I know a lot of ophthalmologists and, you know, nothing personal to them. They're, they're certainly very smart. And then as I got to know him, I was like, wait a minute. That he's not just your run-of-the-mill eye doctor. He's a cancer specialist. He's into wound care. He is into um, surgery, all sorts of specialties, drug development, science. He's every every bit of scientist as he is a, a clinician. And this is really how he's able to put this all together, off-label treatments, mechanisms of action, what works, what doesn't work. And I said to myself, man, we didn't have enough time the first time we had him on, so we had to get him for round two. Dr. Urso, thanks for returning to see our podcast today. 
Thank you so much, Daniel. It's great to be here. That's a great introduction. I appreciate that very much. For people who don't know, I spent nine years in a tissue culture lab and two in a biochem. I've done drug development for scarring, inflammation, wound healing. And that's the reason I got involved uh, last March, because I saw clearly that there was early treatment measures that would work. I found about nine different drugs, maybe 10 that might work and seem like good candidates. And I felt like I needed to speak out about it because I saw people saying that we needed to go home. There was no early treatment. And further, Daniel, I was quite aware of the fact that this was primarily after the first week, an inflammatory disease, and there was lots of things we could try, and there was also blood clots that were occurring, and clearly we have lots of treatments for blood clots. So I I want to go over some of that again, some of the specifics, and, and, and again, for our listeners, you are also very specialized in sports medicine. You've treated some pretty famous athletes. And pretty much every, everything I could throw at you, you have what to say on it, which is why I really enjoy these conversations. So in general, we're always on the lookout here on this program to find the latest trends. What's working? What's not working? The virus clearly has gotten more serious the last few months, and there's different theories for it. Gert Vandenbosch has a nice article out of trial site today we read uh, discussing his concern that there's some degree of vaccine-mediated enhancement here. So could you t- tell our listeners, do you feel your protocols are holding up even with this kind of quicker to inflammatory stage version of it? And could you share with us what are some of the things, to the extent you could vet them out, you feel are the most potent? Yes, that's a great question. You know, we keep tweaking it. If you go on AAP, aapsonline.org, my, my, uh, my protocol is actually the protocol that's listed. And if you look at it, it has six or seven different medications on that list, along with vitamin D, aspirin, and melatonin as over-the-counter measures. And it's been refined because as the variants occur, we're finding the old stuff didn't work. Last year, we were able to get by with uh, three or four different things, and we were okay. I used five of my first patient last year, but that that whole protocol kind of fell apart with the Delta variant. Um, you know, as you know, Pierre Corey even came out and said, I don't know why ivermectin is not working like it did. Uh, so a lot of us were kind of thrown off by the Delta variant because I think the higher viral loads, um, the mutation um, that occurred has made it uh, so that people that are vaccinated are getting just as bad a disease as people who are unvaccinated, it seems to me. Uh, we've got uh, quite a few in our hospital here, 40 percent of the people uh, are vaccinated that are in the ICU. So we're seeing we're seeing significant numbers of sick people and it's because the, the the variations are occurring in the mutations and we've got we've got to re, re reassess every time. It's it's really disturbing. I you know you mentioned a couple of things. It's really disturbing because it's so hard for us something really wrong when the pharmacists are denying us medications. Even simple things. Prednisone, budesonide, I've tried to get dutasteride. So I'll go through some of them, but for people who don't know, um, we've added in a lot of things starting back in June to really hit the inflammatory side. And we've added in the H1 blocker that's called ciproheptadine. It also blocks serotonin real well. It's been a godsend. It's been a fantastic drug add-on. Uh, we also start using Pepsid. As everybody knows, that's one of the major drugs we use for peptic ulcer disease. And that has been an add-on that seems to be very helpful. In fact, I'm in a clinical trial right now with its use with celecoxibid 
and Pepsid as an add-on treatment to the to the usual treatment. Uh, we're seeing uh, Singular, which is a asthma med, that's been added on. We didn't really use that that much last year. So we've added on phenylfibrates, Tricor. This is a cholesterol drug. That's in the mix. So Dutasteride, what that does is it prevents the virus from from uh, binding with the TMPRSS2. So everyone knows about the ACE2 receptor. That's the initial binding site. But in order for the whole landing pad to occur from the virus to actually land completely on the host cell, you need this TMPRSS2 protein seri- uh, uh, protein um, <clears throat> protease to actually, serine protease to actually uh, cleave and allow it to happen. And the dutasteride prevents that. And, and some of the studies show up to a 70% reduction in viral loads with dutasteride. So all these things have been brought into the mix. And we've, you know, the formula, as I said, is on aapsonline.org for anybody who wants to look at the formula. Uh, but it's a lot more extensive than what we had last year. No, absolutely. And this certainly does seem to be, especially for those that are getting a little bit of a pulmonary phase, maybe the SAT's dropping a little bit. Um, but do you have any advice? And again, this is hard for people because you need a prescription anyway. The Pepsid obviously is something they could easily get over the counter. The nasal irrigation is great. We've been pushing that a lot. Um, but something that's a catch all. So ivermectin was good because it was a catch all early phase, late phase, antiviral, anti-inflammatory qualities on both sides. Um, but now it's, it's becoming a problematic with, getting it, becoming more expensive because of the limitations on it. It's lost a little bit of its muster. I feel, you know, I'm, I'm finding you get it day one with ivermectin. It does very good. But, you, you know, let it go a little bit. It might still stop a cytokine storm at the end side, but kind of that middle ground where you just feel really bad flu for a while, you know, it's it's lost a little bit of its muster. Do we have any replacement? Are there any cool kids on the block or you're just saying it's just, you know, it's a few things synergistically. Yeah. You've got it. The sequential multi-drug therapy is the, is the right way to say it. And so if we're talking about treatment, you really, one of the biggest things I do now is I always load up on vitamin D at the outset, 40 to 50,000 units for four, for four days. And that really makes a difference. We're seeing a depletion in D as people go through, if they get to more severe disease and there's a major study showing that the loading of D at the front side of the infection decreases all the inflammatory markers. And D is so important. I tell people it's the data analyst of your, of your system. Cancer cell, uh, pathogen, pollen, self, all those things are recognized because D is on board. And basically, your immune system's flying blind when there's no vitamin D on board. So it attacks things that don't need to be attacked. It attacks you. It attacks pollen. It attacks things it doesn't need to attack instead of uh, appropriately um, in being more efficient in the whole system. You need that. You need D. That's a big one. And I think, like you said, we can do a lot of the nasal washes. Betadine uh, and hydrogen peroxide are helpful. Um, I think these are smart things to do. But I think what I really want to caution people is the ivermectin, if you've got a little bit stashed in the closet somewhere, it's not going to do it on its own most of the time. You're really going to hit. And the problem is you fall off a cliff at around day eight. And so a lot of people feel okay. And I caution you to kind of take that approach. You really need a multi-drug sequential cocktail. Aspirin needs to be in the mix. Aspirin is real important to prevent the thrombosis. It's easily attainable. 
And that's another thing I would say most people should be on. Melatonin, if you get sick, decreases NLRP3 inflammasomes. That means that's a big, a huge branch of the inflammatory cascade is knocked out with melatonin. So that's helping you also. Now, what should people take for the fever aspect of this? You know, a lot of people, you got to take the aspirin for the blood clotting, but the, you know, most people find that Tylenol or Advil work better for fever. But I've heard that Tylenol could dep- work against your glutathione, which you're trying to increase by using the NAC, the NAC that we're pushing a lot. What's the best option? I, I'm glad you brought that up because. The only option the NIH mentions is Tylenol, which does deplete glutathione, <laughs> which has multiple bad effects for allowing the b- virus to proliferate more. So I try to stay away from Tylenol and use, you can use, um, uh, aspirin can be used, but I, I worry about it. Patients who are sick, they can really get peptic ulcers. You can use a little aspirin. I actually have been using Motrin and I think it's, um, I think it's been working pretty well. And I tell people to limit it to no more than 400 milligrams. Yeah, and try to toughen it out more more than possible. So yeah, so they, even a broken clock is right twice. But the one uh, the one guidance they'll give is actually wrong. Um, okay, just before we move on, I want to talk about your 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 project to actually promote this. But again, this is so important. Um, you know, a lot of what we're talking about is just to dabble in this intellectually, so people know maybe what to ask of some of these doctors. But ultimately, they're going to need a doctor to help them. But in terms of things that are over the counter, people are preparing, um, you know, COVID kits, which which is a good idea. What are some other things that, you know, they should really have in their COVID kit, both for bulking up on it and consuming it, taking it preemptively, and then also to have on hand for, uh, you know, the immediate symptoms. You know, I just want to back up a little bit because one of the things that is really I'm seeing over and over again is people with insulin resistance. I recommend that if you have insulin resistance, if you're 25 pounds overweight, you have insulin resistance. And you really need to be thinking about that. Go on a low-carb diet. I'd say, you know, what we call a keto diet. A lot of times I recommend to my patients, you don't have to do a full-time keto diet. I have everybody eat meat and fish and vegetables up till 5 o'clock, and then I give them a meal, whatever you want, till you go to sleep. It works pretty well because what I find is um, people end up losing weight. Their hemoglobin A1Cs come down, um, usually a point or two over just a month. They end up losing a few pounds. Insulin resistance is the one thing that I'm seeing with this Delta variant that I didn't see last year. People are 25 pounds overweight, pretty healthy, six foot two guy, you know, weighed 180. Now he weighs 205 or 215 because he's, you know, 40 years old. These people are getting really <laughs> sick. I've had, I just had a 38 year old pass away just like that, that I, that I just mentioned, just like that. Uh, so insulin resistance. So get on a low carb diet. If you're really interested in helping yourself, that's what I would do. Um, it's, that would be the first thing I would do. The first, most important thing. And then Get your vitamin D levels up over over 50. 30 to 100 is normal. It's hard to go into a cytokine storm with a level uh, over 50. And so that's a real protector. Other than that, I think I don't mind you taking zinc. I don't mind doing the NAC. I like the NAC a lot. Um, the zinc can be helpful. Um, you, have to, you have to partner it with a little bit of copper because a high dose of zinc will cause copper deficiency, will cause vascular issues. So there is reasons why you don't want to overdo pretty much uh, some of these other other vitamins. 
but you don't want to be deficient either. But the most important is vitamin D, vitamin D, vitamin D. I'm also a huge proponent of vitamin K2, which has some effects on on SARS-CoV-2. There's one paper on it. But the most important thing I like about uh, vitamin K2 is that it actually decreases stroke and heart attack by about 50%. The best epidemiology we have, which is called the Rotterdam study, and it improves the bone health in that study by 83%. So we're seeing those are things that you can do that are just good for your health that are going to help you. And then having in your bag, having you know, having the aspirin ready, um, having the melatonin ready, um, if you can get your hands on some of the ivermectin, I think it's a good choice. And then if you get sick, get the monoclonals. They help. They're, they're very helpful. We found them to be very helpful. Um, but don't get fooled that that's it. If, you're, if you stay sick, remember that day eight, nine, that's where you fall off, and it's really a fast fall. So uh, don't, be, don't get overconfident with this disease. Do not. Exactly. Yeah. You know, keep it, keep it at bay. Um, lots of important details there. And I hope you guys bookmark this again, Dr. Richard Urso with some expert advice here. And I'll tell you, doctor, you know, um, this is what informed consent looks like when someone actually explains it to you. My whole life, I, you know, I'm, I have a pretty good metabolism and I'm, I'm the type of guy that can get away with a lot of bad eating. Um, but you know, I'm getting into my upper thirties and I think I was putting on a few pounds I probably didn't need, and I was a big soda guy, and I was a big bread guy, and then I met Ryan Cole, and you know he really convinced me, and I've cut it out about 90%, and I eat a lot of meat and chicken, and I eat a lot, I eat a lot of other stuff, just that alone, I've, I've absolutely lost weight, I have absolutely lost weight in a short period of time too, um, just trying to cut out those two things. Yeah, I'll, um, I'll, I'll, I'll so, mention something about that if you don't mind. A lot of times when you when you take in about 20 grams of carbohydrates, you basically kick off an insulin switch that basically turns on a, a hormonal cascade that, for the most part, you go into storage mode for about eight hours. So if you go and eat a piece of bread for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, you're basically in storage mode pretty much the whole day. So it is smart to go part of the day at least without carbs because you, you'll have the insulin, the insulin switch creates a, a storage cascade and you really won't burn fat basically lipolysis uh, shuts down once you hit your insulin switch so this is a really smart thing to do long term uh, to you know have part of your days where you actually don't don't eat carbs it'll really help one more specific thing before we move on to, to some of the agenda items uh, I got this from you, and I want our audience to hear this. Just um, you know, again, we're not saying this is proven yet for COVID, but really fascinating. Everyone knows by now that ivermectin uh, through proxy through Professor Moore and Campbell, they won the it, it won the Nobel Prize for Physiology in 2015. Well, that same year, there was another um, winner that shared that prize for physiology. Um, it was a uh, professor Su. Um, oh man, I'm not forgetting Tu Suyu, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, from China, for discovering artemisinin for malaria. Does that have some potential for COVID? I'm seeing a lot of that online. Yeah, it does. I keep a stock of it in my house uh, because if we run out of these other things, it's another one of these wonder drugs. There are so many, and I want to see this like. I don't think people realize it has multiple effects on multiple different uh, uh, viruses. Uh, of course, it works on malaria, and it's it's another drug. Madagascar was able to shut down for a while with our temp, our, our medicine, 
uh, they were able to shut down their their breakout with it. Uh, you don't hear anything about it. This was last year, and it's kind of cooled out. It's almost like uh, somehow it got snuffed from the news. But it's a very effective uh, agent against this virus, and it would be part of, you know, use it as a multi-drug cocktail, just like nitazoxanide, just like ivermectin, just like hydroxychloroquine, just like azithromycin, which is a great immune modulator. I think people think of it as an antibiotic. It's one of the best immune modulators that we have, azithromycin. I actually gave and, and you do... a talk, and I, was, I said, these are all the wonder drugs. And phenylfibrate is amazing. You know, it works against neuroectodermal tum- tumors like uh, neuro- uh, uh, neuroblastomas and um, melanomas, glioblastomas. It has some in- impact. And I, I've been using it for tumors for about 14 years. And that's tr- Well, that's another thing. We're going to have to do a whole show on cancer and, and all the suppressed research because that's, that's fascinating that it seems to me as a layman, I'm starting to get the hang of this, that, wait a minute, a lot of this stuff seems to have a lot of research also on cancer. I mean, half the things we just mentioned seem to have research. And to me, in just the most the most dumbed-down way of explaining it, in my mind, is like, well, it's the bad stuff attacking the good stuff, and this stuff seems to have good mechanisms for shoring up and protecting the on-ramps into the good stuff. So if it blocks... Viruses, it just might block tumors. Yeah, I don't so, know. It's so great. I love talking <laughs> about hydroxychloroquine because that's my this is one of my all time favorite drugs. I, I've been using it for for, for since uh, probably 1992 for dry eye for Sjogren's disease. And I always tell people it low. I may have said it on the show before. It lowers the hemoglobin A1C. It lowers the glucose. It lowers the cholesterol. It lowers the, uh, the incidence of stroke, heart attack, pulmonary embolus. Lowers the risk of chronic kidney disease, improves the bone health, decreases atherosclerosis, improves uh, insulin resistance, uh, improves platelet aggregation, decreases neutrophil extracellular traps, which is seen in this disease. And then the, the kicker, um, it, it, there are now 96 clinical trials at clinicaltrials.gov of hydroxychloroquine's usage in cancer. It's an amazing drug. And people talk about the side effects. Those are your side effects. Folks, I want you to play over in slow mode the last two minutes of Dr. Urso, just just right there. And I want you to think as you're listening, as you're listening to this show, I want you to think of every other syndrome and ailment that we know about and think about the doctors that you run across. The difference between a doctor that is a scientist and actually thinks and understands mechanisms of action versus an algorithm one. Because the algorithm one will miss all of that. It's very regimented. Whatever the government approves for that specific thing, it cannot be looked outside the box. Remember, this is this is a, a dangerous epidemic of the untreated that the more I think about it, it's not just for COVID. It's the most evident and surreal because it's a pandemic. But this is likely going on in many with many other syndromes where it's like hey i don't know i don't see any other options here um and 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 this this business of just ignoring off label ignoring the fact that we have things on the market both drugs supplements natural stuff um and just dismissing it is is just criminal so dr urso i want to use that to transition to globalcovidsummit.org um, what we have going on is a collapse of the Nuremberg Code, a collapse of informed consent, a collapse of compassion, of of just just treatment. It's 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 a crisis of 
a lack of treatment. It's like firefighters saying we are on strike and and the more there's a fire, the more we're not going to treat it. Um, we're not going to to fight the fire. Um, we're going to run away from it rather than towards it. What is your goal with this? How could people help out? How do you plan on making an impact? Thank you for, for, for bringing this up because I really want everybody to know, first of all, we've been let down significantly. It's really uh, uh, it's sad to see what's happened with the FDA, the, the WHO, the NIH, the CDC. We've really been let down with their information. So a lot of us have been together now for a year and a half. People like Pierre Corey, Peter McCullough, myself, Ryan, doctors overseas. Uh, we've, we've, we've been talking to each other. It's been wonderful. The colleagues have shared, just like we always share. Uh, you brought, you, I'll bring something back up to you about drug development later on. But this whole thing developed because we were sharing information. And what started happening, we started getting picked off one by one, just attacked. And so what we decided um, was let's form an organization. We'll stand together um, and we'll come up with the core principles of how we get through this pandemic. And that's what we've done. First thing we did was basically to return to the Hippocratic Oath. The declaration is actually being, uh, we are bringing in modifications to the declaration now to address how to get through this pandemic. The most critical things we have to do that we must get accomplished. And it's been not, this is not one doctor. This is 11,000 doctors. There is this not anyone's, it's everyone's. And we've decided that physicians and scientists, we need to stand up together because we know we can't count on our government to do it. They're trying. We've met. I've had. I've been so blessed to be able to be in the White House and Congress and the Senate, our Texas Senate also. Uh, we've had uh, meetings with the governor, many other governors, many people have reached out to us to try to to try to get our point of view across. But we're not seeing them being able to uh, uh, really make impacts. And what we decided was let's all pull together. And so now this organization, we're bigger than the NIH, the CDC, the FDA, and the WHO, because we now have 12,000 doctors standing together and saying, we need to stop the intentional uh, assault on early treatment. We need to stop that. This is, this is inhumane, and this cannot happen anymore. We have to stop this. We are getting intentionally uh, uh, un not allowed to prescribe medicines by our pharmacy boards we are having our medicines held up at the border. Ivermectin apparently is sitting on ships hard to, hard to get across through customs right now. So there is a lot of things that are happening that are making it really hard for us to do it. And we are, are saying we need to do our jobs and we need to stop this and we can end this pandemic with early treatment. Furthermore, many of us believe in vaccination programs but we do not believe in vaccinating people who are immune uh, competent. This is insane. It's ridiculous. It's intellectually arrogant. There's no reason for it. So we've stood up and we've said, we are not going to allow you to vaccinate our immune competent COVID recovered patients. And then because there's no signal of benefit, we're not going to allow you to vaccinate our children. There should be no mandate for children's vaccination when the uh, infection fatality rate for 5 to 11 is 0 0.05 per 100,000, which is 1 in 2 million, and for 12 to 17, it's 0 0.1 per 100,000 or 1 in a million. These are absurdities. 
There's no signal of benefit. You can only harm those children. And that's what we're seeing. We're seeing people being harmed. So we've got 12,000 doctors now that are standing up and saying enough. We're smarter. We're bigger. We're more powerful together than all the organizations that I just mentioned earlier. And that's what we're setting out to do. That's perfect. I mean, because that's emblematic of what I've dealt with my whole political career is that you could have a silent majority suppressed because no one wants to be the one to put their head out and everyone's like, I don't want to lose my job. But once you create a critical mass, then it's a cascading effect. And it looks like that's what you're trying to do um, because you have a lot of bad doctors. You have a lot of doctors that I think are in my mind, committing genocide. But then there's guys, there's a lot of people, I get emails from people, their doctors like, you could tell they're not against it, but they're just, they say, I'll lose, I'll lose my license. And it's a very common refrain. And I think it's those people that we need to get on board uh, to challenge the system as well. Um, what do, Are you going to have agenda items like going around and testifying before various state and even international legislative bodies? Yes, we are. Um, We're working right now in Texas to get the legislation passed. Our governor came out. Thank God. We've been talking with the governor's office. Um, I've had meetings with to talk about the mandates over the last several months. Recently had had one that I thought was just more of a, a political talk that was basically like, how should I how should I go forward uh, during the campaign trail talking about these things? Well, it really surprised me to see the governor come up and we're really proud of our Texas governor right now for coming out and said any entity cannot enforce a mandate for the vaccine. This means anyone, anywhere. It means hospitals. It means everybody can't do it. And he threw it back to the legislature. And I think it's appropriate because he's not being in a sense, um, he's not being, you know, He's not being a dictator, and this is what we want. We want process to occur, and our legislature now, we're working on them because now they've got to be convinced that if they go forward with these bills, that they're not going to have you know attacks on them and then lose because Big Pharma comes in and funds somebody to beat these people down, and they know it. So people are afraid of Big Pharma. Big Pharma is uh, really powerful in, in politics. They influence a lot. Um, they The head of uh, Pfizer is also the head of the Trusted News Network. So, that I mean, one of the guys <laughs> on the board, he's on the board of Pfizer, and he's the actual CEO of the Trusted News Network n- initiative. So there's so much interconnection between media and big pharma, and it's impossible to win, and they know it. So they're really scared, but these guys are starting to come around, and I think if people see it happening here in Texas, that things are going in the right direction, it'll embolden others to do the same, like you said. It'll be like a cascade where other uh, politicians will say, you know, I'm going to do it too. So I'm really proud of him of doing it. Um, it's made a big impact. We're already working on it. Now we are going to Washington. Several of the people have gone, people like Pierre Corey, Peter McCullough, Ryan, and there's many others that are reaching out. But we're going to try an initiative where we're going to try to introduce legislation for the things we said, to try to get rid of these mandates and to basically say we need to let doctors be doctors. We should not allow the pharmaceutical industry, the hospital industry, and the media to run our medical practices. This is definitely the corporate practice of medicine, and it's specifically outlawed in this country. And we need to make sure that doesn't happen because it's happening right now. Like you said, they're afraid of losing their jobs because the corporate practice of medicine has taken over. 
and we're not going to allow it. Now, the other thing that they're losing their jobs over, so is their early treatment, but then there's also, even in a state like Tennessee, red state, um, the Tennessee Medical Board came out with a statement that they're going to go after anyone who puts out, in their view, what they consider to be misinformation on the so-called vaccine. And what I find, I want you to speak about your clinical experience with this, because what I find very scary about this is that we've reached a new phase. We can no longer remain silent. So, you know, we knew right away if you, like you said, if you had the virus and if you're a kid, it really isn't justified. But that was even back when we thought in our mind, like you labeled a vaccine, <clears throat> so it's going to kind of work. But now that it's not even, it, it's worn off, you really have to go back and, and look at the other side of the ledger and you need doctors to freely look at the the side effect side because you know I, I just read a study from uh, it's a preprint from Washington University in St. Louis, but it had a Harvard researcher on it, uh, several others internationally, that in their sample size, sixty four percent of postmenopausal menopausal women experience breakthrough bleeding. I mean, that's not normal. That's just one example of the ubiquitous nature we're seeing of problems. It's not okay, you know, the one in a million uh, allergic reaction or something. We are seeing very known, bizarre, um, but also sometimes predictable blood disorders. Um, you know, every practice is going to experience this. It's not like, oh, really? You, you had something from DTaP? I, wow, I didn't, I didn't know that. Or polio vaccine. Um, every single office is seeing this. But they're not allowed to talk about it, and with that is going to come a chilling effect on even documenting it. Yeah, that's, this is a shame. Something's really wrong when we can't give out information and be transparent. This is, this is not right. And I think it's very easy to say, I can say this, I'm not afraid to say it. This is the most deadly vaccine rollout in the entire history of the last four decades. This is what it is, and it, it trumps every single vaccine that's ever been uh, given to patients over the last four decades, when you add them all up, there's less death than that have been occurred from the VAERS database than in this vaccine. And if you look at some of the CMS data, you see tens and tens of thousands of patients have died. Uh, Peter McCullough just came out and testified. Um, there are tens and tens of thousands. It might be up to 150,000 patients that have died within 28 days of the vaccine. So massive numbers of people have died, just like COVID. You see the 28 days within COVID, they've actually had um, considered to be a PCR positive, was considered even a motorcycle wreck, was considered a COVID death. And we're seeing, uh, I think, I believe the number is 160,000 deaths within 28 days of the vaccine. And I think that data is from, you know, from, uh, from about a month and a half ago or so. So the numbers increased. So the vaccine is responsible for... 16,000 deaths based on the VAERS database. And it looks like if you go by CMS data, there are many people that are passing away shortly after receiving the vaccine. And these numbers are, are astonishing, actually. And it's a shame that people don't know potentially how dangerous this can be. It just is what it is. And then people don't know that the vaccine has the distribution into the uh, reproductive organs, particularly the ovaries. We know that's going to cause inflammation. And I think we need to alert people that this is informed consent. It's not a bad or good thing. It just is. Lipid nanoparticles are like garlic. They go everywhere. They go to the brain. They go to bone marrow, adrenal glands, uh, ovaries. And that's what they do. We know they do this because I've personally 
was involved in some work where we were looking at them as uh, carriers, lipid nanoparticle chemotherapeutic carriers into the brain. But because they went to bone marrow and other organs, we said we don't want to carry chemo to those organs, so we abandoned it. So they're not controllable, and this is a problem. And I think we just need to go to the data and let the data be what it is. And we're seeing significant injuries in my own clinic. We've had astonishing numbers of, of shingles and Bell's palsies. Uh, more than we've ever seen of collecting the numbers. You know, if anybody wants to know how well I can collect numbers, we have 300,000 patients coming through our clinic, my clinic every year. So it's a big clinic. And we look to just give data, not to give alarm, just to let people know. We just want people to know that what hap- what's happening. So these are, these are very important. Um, these are very important things that we want uh, the world to know is that this is a dangerous vaccine compared to any other vaccine we've ever had. And I think people have gotten used to the, the fear has created this effect like like in a war where you're like, well, we lost 50,000 troops in Vietnam, but you know, that's what yes. happens when you're at war. And that's, that's what, what happens. This is the price. And, and, and again, in the context of discussing Singular and Ivermectin and phenofibrate, things that are so safe and good drugs, um, you know, we have other ideas. We've, we've bounced around with each other and all of us, and we talk about them. But anything that might be problematic, we're like, yeah, that has symptoms. We, we shy away from that. So that, that's the point. It's not like we don't have an alternative that won't cause these issues. Um, could you speak a little bit about the 800-pound gorilla in the room which is the blood disorders. I, I, I'm hearing a lot of people in my sphere get these mysterious blood clots, not just the myocarditis with the young people, but all ages, the blood clotting. Do you have any way of quantifying some degree of, of, of what you're seeing with that? Well, yeah, I'll tell you. Let me just give you a vignette here. Uh, got a four, there are four sisters. Uh, they come see me. I saw one, the 78-year-old, the youngest. Uh, the other three are 81, 83, and 85. Within two and a half weeks of getting the vaccine, two of them were dead. Uh, one of them had a massive stroke. And so it was, a, it was a shock. I came in, I go, where's your sisters? And then she's it's like, well, you know, she was, this is what's happening. We're seeing these vascular events, but we know the spike is, the spike is thrombogenic. The spike causes blood clots. This is what we know the spike does. But here's why they're getting those myocarditis. The lipid nanoparticles fit everywhere. They fit through tight junctions. That's why they go to the brain. Most of the time when you give a drug or you give an entity a regular vaccine, it doesn't get into the brain because there's tight junctions that keep it out. Lipid nanoparticles can fit through a door with a crack in it, and that's what these do. And so the heart is one of the organs that has a lot of tight junctions. Along the outside of the blood vessel walls are something called pericytes. They're on the outside. On the inside is the endothelium. So they fit through the endothelial cells that are really tight junctions, and they get around to the outside. And, and, and hit the ACE2 receptors on these, on these kids' hearts. And basically, they're creating this massive myocarditis where we get troponin levels. Let me give numbers. Usually it's one or two when you get a, a carditis, myocarditis from the disease, but it's up to 30 and 40 when you get it from the vaccine because the vaccine can slip through the blood vessel walls because of this lipid nanoparticle. So this is why we, you know, we need to let people know this is, this is very dangerous to do these, these children particularly, but Everyone getting this vaccine is, is, at, is at risk for uh, blood, blood clots. It's significantly happening. We're seeing the D-dimers go up. Uh, in one study, half the people who got the vaccine had a, had a high D-dimer, which means that's called microthrombosis. 
So these are things that are we're could, could someone live their whole life with microclotting and not have an issue from it? I'm just curious. The answer to that is no. Um, but the answer to that, of course, it's happening all the time. There's always there's always repair going on. Our body's in constant flux and repair. So mm-hmm. there's constant microthrombosis. But there's a normal level of that. So once it gets above a, a, a certain level, no. The answer is no. They won't. They're going to have pulmonary embolus. They're going to have things. But yeah, there's always microthrombosis in some sense because there's a state of repair uh, and and wound that's uh, wounding that's going on all the time in our bodies, and so that's why there's a quote unquote normal D-dimer. Got it. I mean that that is just really scary. But what might even be more scary, and I want to end with this, is cancer. So. You know, the cardiovascular stuff, the blood disorders, they seem to, for the most part, erupt relatively quickly. Um, It's just an issue of how many of them are truly documented uh, into theirs, and most of them aren't. But you'll, you'll know that, and it's hard to miss it. But cancer, if there's any concern, it's going to take a very long time to really vet that out. My fear is it's going to be way too late. This, this ship would have sailed. Uh, They would have vaccinated every last person. Um, you know, there were problems with the animal studies with the SARS-1 vaccine of them developing cancers. And when they were developing this, I thought, yeah, I mean, that's the starting point. Of course, they're going to deal with that. Obviously, you're not going to put out a product that's going to have problems. It never entered my mind. But people like Dr. Cole and others are grumbling about this, what they're seeing in labs. It's all anecdotal at this point. The concern is that the CD8 killer T-cells that patrol for the tumors, um, for the bad cells, that they're being depleted, and that could lead to more aggressive cancer. Do you share that? I, I know we, we don't have any of this confirmed. Do you share that concern? Yeah, so it's a great question because what we might also be seeing is that uh, the vaccines particularly may be turning off some of the tumor suppressor genes. Um, there's been some some talk about that. There's a couple of papers on it. And then, like you said, we're, we're hitting on these T cells that actually have important uh, effects on, on basically getting rid of, of cancer cells. So we don't know, but I, I have seen some tumors very aggressive. Um, I, I, I hate to give anecdotes, but I had a girl, 38 years old, no problems, got the vaccine. About three weeks later, came up with a, a brain tumor, a glioblastoma. Um, it's not common for a 38-year-old to get a glioblastoma. The thing grew to the size of a grapefruit um, in about literally um, in about two and a half weeks. The guy who saw her at MD Anderson, who's been in practice probably 30 years, says it's the fasting, fastest growing tumor he's ever seen. She ended up passing away. They did their best, but she ended up passing away. We can't say it was from the vaccine. It was very unusual to see this constellation of, of uh, and pattern of disease. And, and this, is an, this is a world expert saying this. So... I think we're really concerned. My background is, that, is, is in oncology, and I have seen an increase in my practice of, uh, of tumors. Particularly, I see a lot of, I've seen a lot of lymphomas, um, more than I ever have in any one year. But that could perhaps be just, you know, I'm at the stage of my career where, where I've been in practice a long time and people send me a lot of the work. Uh, so I don't know sure. for sure. We're going to try to collect the data at the end of the year, looking at the amounts of uh, of, of of tumors we're seeing in our clinics and how much Bell's palsy and how much shingles we're seeing and see how that works out against, you know, like 2018, 2019. I think I'm pretty confident. I look, the, you know, the numbers are going to be significantly elevated 
Um, and I'm looking forward to kind of sharing that information. And honestly, you know, Daniel, I, I hope, I think the thing to say is what's sad about this is that we have a group that has allowed this to happen. And, you know, I have to kind of be the bearer of bad news. I, I don't think that's appropriate. I, I, I find, I find that to be, I mean, kind of arrogant, inefficient. I don't know how I can explain this, but like, this is not fun. This is not fun. I don't like to have no. to be in this position. Um, this should have but, been. But we have to look for it. Guess, like, th- this do. is my concern. It seems to me that it's pretty obvious someone should do a randomized controlled trial of a few thousand sample vaccinated people and check their D-dimers. I mean, that that's a pretty obvious thing to do for one of these holy outlets that get millions of dollars in government grants like you you would do this when you see signals which we're definitely seeing you would jump on that the menstrual stuff you would and and the, and the cancer you would study that but we're left with unsettling signals and it's shut up you can't prove it well i know and i don't really want to but you're the ones who need to rule that out before you shove it on people and they're not doing it do you guys have any ability with your organization because they're they're not going to do this. They are not going to study something that potentially could give an answer that they don't want to exist. Um, So they're not going to embark on that research. They're not going to do the D-dimers. Do you guys have any plan to try to test out some of these concerns? So, uh, like I said, I think sometimes we can do data. We've already sort of done data collection in some sense with some of the things I mentioned. And then, of course, you need to do all the proper, you know, things, the IRBs and everything whenever you do any kind of studies. And, and we're going to do all that. The thing on, the, uh, on, on doing the lab testing, actually, we're in the process with Dr. Cole of trying to do a small study to, as, as a proof of concept to see if there's something there, see if there is some signal there. Maybe, you know, perhaps we're, perhaps we're, we're, we're not seeing as much as we think. So I think we're, we're, we're putting that together. And as you said, you know, we don't have funding. We're basically relying on um, uh, small contributors who are, you know, themselves rich people that are willing to kind of put up the money so we could do a study like this. And I I think that's the same thing we're seeing with the myocarditis in the children. I've got somebody who's going to put up the money. It's going to take about $100,000 to do the study to show the kids have the the tight junctions, the lipid nanoparticles particles getting through. They're getting to the pericytes. The pericytes are creating all the thrombos, all the inflammation in the myo. And, the, and causes the myocarditis. So pretty confident that's what's happening. But this is how research is done. It takes time. And as you said, when you have unlimited resources, you could do a lot more. Unfortunately, like I said, I just want to, everyone who's listening to the call, like this is not fun to talk about this. I'd love to come on here and say, hey, I can, we can end this pandemic. Let's give prophylaxis. Let's give ivermectin as a prophylaxis. And, and, and then when people get sick, we'll treat them. We'll give them the monoclonals. We'll give them the other meds. We didn't even talk about the nucleoside analogs that they're using. An old drug, like they basically got this out of the garbage bin. Nucleoside analogs are basically drugs that have been <laughs> around for cancer from the 1950s. This, so people think they did great research. This is not great research. You know, like I said, you know, the, the, you talk you, about... You're referring to Merck's Monopiravir, Merck's Monopiravir yeah. that they're just and touting. And Remdesivir. Yeah. And, 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 and here's the thing. This is what's so scary. We used to think like, man, if this were a problem, they would have vetted it out. Or if there's promise, conversely, in this thing, they would have vetted that out. But we now know categorically they will not. And this is what's amazing. They'll they'll 
bring that out of the garbage and then say it's new, even though it's repurposed. Same thing with Remdesivir from repurposed from Ebola. But then stuff, you and I were talking about this, a couple other doctors, we're, we were going around Robin, this thing, that thing, kind of like we did artemisinin and this and that. And like, let's just take nitazoxanide. Okay, the studies on it were amazing. Even the media was glowing about it like 17 months ago. And it has a major past precedent and profile as not just a antiviral in general, but specifically for coronaviruses and MERS and SARS. Why wouldn't you look at that? Why wouldn't you over 17 months be, oh my gosh, we're down and out. We have nothing. People are dying. This thing looks promising. Okay, I don't want to jump into it right away, but let's do a good clinical trial. No, nothing. They, and, and they it's, never will. And they have no it's plans. Off it's off patent. And I'm going to say this because I want everybody to hear this. These nucleoside analogs, okay, they are very good at killing anything that replicates. Now, viruses replicate quickly, you know, like every eight hours. So it's going to be effective against viruses because anything that replicates. So it'll kill a virus. It'll kill a cancer cell that replicates quickly. That's why chemo is given sequentially. You don't get chemo for 25 days in a row. You get a Get a, you get a round, then you get another round, another round, because you don't want to kill things that are, that are replicating slowly. That's your normal body. But cancer cells rep, replicate quickly. Viruses replicate quickly. Bacteria replicates quickly. And guess what? Humans replicate. So it's going to kill us. <laughs> it's going to kill viruses, bacteria, and cancer cells. That's what, that's what mutagenic agents do. So the problem is maybe they're going to create mutations that may survive, right? So then we're going to have another virus of, uh, you know, another oh, no. type of, of this virus that's basically going to be different. And I'm not saying that's going to happen, but the reality is you might create a completely different virus that the COVID recovered won't get around, that the people who have been vaccinated won't get around because the mutagenic agent has created a big mutation that happened, happened to be, most of them are going to not survive, but every once in a while, one out of a billion or so of the mutagenic agent will create a cell that does survive. That's why cancer cells don't always get killed, right? Because they they mutate around and they survive. So that's why you shrink, the, you shrink you know, the tumor cell with the mutagenic agent, but then one of the cells learns to get around it and then the tumor comes back. Same thing with the virus. It's funny, from speaking to people like you, I've gotten a real education. It's almost like a, a full year of medical school. And one of the things that I feel I've learned, an interesting principle, in a lot of things in life, we're always like, you gotta go on offense. The best... Defense is an offense, and certainly politically, we, we certainly believe that way. But what I've learned from these things, viruses and cancers, offense is actually not good because the more you play footsies with the virus, whether it's with a you know narrow-spectrum vaccine in the middle of a pandemic – or, or or this type of therapeutic, it can mutate around it, whereas the better approach that all of you have seemed to coalesce around is a defensive fortification one, boosting your immune system, fortifying your immune system. Isn't it true that ivermectin, they're like, it's not antiviral. They're actually right in a, in a certain sense, and it's a good thing. It doesn't specifically go on offense against the replication, but isn't it more defensive for the good cells to stop the binding and stop it from getting in? You're going to have to go on the teaching circuit. That's awesome. That's great <laughs> stuff. Yeah, no, I, that's, I can't agree more. It's really well said, too. I think that's a fabulous explanation. Um, that's the strategy as we go forward. Because the reason you take a defensive strategy a lot of times is because, as the principles of medicine are, do no harm. So, but do nothing is, is in, in not, it's ridiculous. But do no harm. So we take this sort of somewhat defensive strategy for that reason. And you, you said it. You've summed it up really well.
Yeah, so in other words, you know, yeah, this thing might have efficacy, Molnupiravir, um, but you know what? Remdesivir probably would also if you used it early outpatient in the viral stage, but it would also cause the kidney problems then too. Correct. And, and, and Correct. God knows what this will bring. And, and that's my fear that I, I think the general theme that we've coalesced around today is that the, the time bombs that they're planting are things that are never going to become apparent until it's too late because there's no informed consent. They're not putting the safety guardrails around it. So it's like, prove me wrong. And yeah, I mean, we can't scientifically prove affirmatively that it's going to cause these things. But since when was the burden of proof on us? You know, they have to categorically prove it's safe. I'll give you the last word again, um, global COVID summit.org. Everyone could sign up there, especially if you're a doctor. Yeah, so we're, we're just excited, Daniel, because we've basically coalesced into a large group with a large voice. Uh, it's going to make a big impact. We're going to go on the offensive with, uh, with media. Um, in a sense, uh, let people know there's a way around this. There is, there is a group of doctors that are over and above this uh, NIH, C, uh, CDC, FDA, and WHO that actually understands how to get us through the pandemic and a defensive strategy that will have less injury to the to the populace as we go forward. And I think that's the main message. We're standing up and we, we thank everyone for, 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 for helping us, for helping get the word out because we have a way through. And now we've got a group that's gonna be strong enough to get, to get a voice. Well said. Again, you could sign up at globalcovidsummit.org. I want all you guys who are doctors to sign your name there. Um, thank you, Dr. Urso, for updating us. Again, we're going to have you back again. There's just too much to leave on the table. And we are way out of time. My producer's going to kill me. But till tomorrow, God bless you all. And thank you for listening. Thank you.